Heavenly Father, your word is wonderful. And you are a great God and a good Father that in your wisdom and kindness you would speak to us and then you would have it recorded in this book. And so I ask that right now you would allow us to, to come to it unlike any other book that's ever existed or ever will. It is not merely ink on a page, but you're living an active word able to embolden us to, to, to refine our perspectives and priorities, to revive us and encourage us and instill in us an unflappable hope. So might we come hungry for it? Might we come humble beneath it? Oh, we can understand the words that it says, but we can't believe them or apply them apart from the gracious intervention of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask for your spirit to move in us. Above all things, God, what we need today, it's what we need every time that we gather as your people, is to leave this, this place more impressed with the one that this text points to, which is King Jesus. So I ask that he would be loud in our songs, in our prayers, our conversations. Pray that he would be loud in this sermon. I pray he would be loud as we leave this place, that you would keep him loud to us until we gather back together again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was 2007 or so, and I was with um, my wife and some buddies and their wives, and we were down this little pub outside of the Key Arena. We were getting ready to go watch the, the Sonics play. You remember when we used to have a basketball team, and we prayed that the Lord would bring them back. We hate you, Oklahoma. Um, and uh, we, were, we were there. We were getting ready to go watch a game, and we're hanging out in this little, little pub, and... Um, there was a guy who was there, and he was, he was playing pool, and then he started talking with us, and it was kind of fine for a while, and, and then it got kind of weird, and he'd been drinking a lot and, and kept drinking, and he, started, he just started saying some kind of intimidating things, started kind of acting a little bit off. I actually went to the restroom, and he kind of followed me into the bathroom. It was just kind of, kind of weird and awkward, and he came back to the, the table where we were sitting, and started making some, some threats. And, and the reason that I didn't get nervous is next to me was one of my buddies who is massive, just this gigantor of a human being. Um, shaved head, looks so intimidating. He's as goofy as can be, but nobody knows it by looking at him. And the other thing was this, he's a police officer. So I'm sitting there with my gigantor police officer friend is this person is threatening us. And the whole time, I'm just thinking, oh, try something. <laughs> As I kept hiding behind him. <laughs> I was mostly calm and confident because my friend was fully calm and confident. That's what happens in the face of a bully when you know someone is stronger. When you know how the fight will go. When you know that someone knows what to do. Um, we're going to look at a text today from Daniel chapter 2, and from our vantage point, it's looking back on something, but for, from the vantage point of the people in this text, it's actually looking forward to something, and here's what it's going to say. It's going to say, it's, it's telling the future, and here's what God is going to say. No matter what things look like, God wins. No matter what's going on, no matter how strong the bullies look, God is stronger. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? I'm going to read a large portion here. Put it up on the screen. If 
is helpful. We enter into this after the king has had a dream and he's trying to find the interpretation of this, this dream. Verse 24 and following, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And he goes in and he tells him this is the dream. To you, O king, and behold a great image. This image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now it will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. As you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Feel free to grab a seat. 
context of this, and I know that um, based on our timing, we, we, we've, we were in chapter two, then we we're out of chapter two, then we've been uh, just by way of reminder, the king had a dream in the middle of the night. King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, a, a super global power, and, and Daniel, whose name Belteshazzar in this text, was, was from Israel. He had been carried off into exile. He's there with his friends. And he's, he, by God's grace, has been kind of risen through the ranks in, in, in the king's enchanters and magicians and wise men. And so the king has this dream, and then he summons the, the, the wise men to him and says, I want you to tell me what the dream is so that I know that you'll know what the interpretation is. And most of, of the first half of Daniel chapter 2 is a, is a text filled with fear because the king is afraid from this dream, and then he makes everyone else afraid because he says, if you don't tell me what the dream is and its interpretation, I'm going to kill you all. And so what Daniel and his friends do is they pray, they seek mercy from the God of heaven to say, would you help us? Would you tell us what the dream was and the interpretation? And that's what we find in this text. Let me just give you a summary of the image. The image described, there's a, think of a, of a giant statue, a head of, of gold as it moves down. There's this chest and arms of silver move down further. The middle and the thighs are made of bronze. The legs are iron. And then the, the feet kind of think of the toes and part of the, the foot is like pieces of clay and pieces of iron. The interpretation that we get from this text makes really clear what the head is. So it says, you, O king, are the head of gold. It says, you, you, the, the head of gold represents you, Nebuchadnezzar, and the kingdom of Babylon. Now, if you've ever sat through a, a Bible class on Daniel, this is um, often what's called apocalyptic literature. So it's a lot of images, a lot of things that are hard to understand. What it, what's it pointing to? What's this really talking about? Um, if you've heard this preach or you've studied this, people spend a lot of time saying, okay, now let's talk about the, the, the chest of silver. Or let's talk about the bronze. Or let's talk, it, it's this kingdom or it's this kingdom. And I think that can be fruitful, but I think one of the things that can happen is we actually miss the point of this text. And the point of this text is that after your kingdom is going to come another kingdom and then another kingdom, but here's the reality. None of them will last except for one. There's only one that will last that will come and crush all of the other ones. All of them. Daniel is saying, Nebuchadnezzar, no matter what you do, your kingdom will not last. There's only one that will. Let me give you... Um, Three observations just as we, we, we dive into this text that we get from a text like this. The first one is this is that God is involved. God is involved. We see this. Um, who makes the, the dream known? Well, verse 28 says the God of heaven has revealed the dream. If you go back to verses 17 and 18 in Daniel 2, who gives mercy to even make the dream known? It's God. If you go back to Daniel chapter 1, who is it that allowed Daniel and his friends to rise up through the ranks to be in this position before the king? It was God gave them wisdom and understanding. Partly why I point this out is that we locate the context of Daniel's friends as they're in exile. They're in a, in a foreign land under a vicious king trying to live faithful to God. And one of the things that we see throughout the book of Daniel is God cares about them. And God is involved with Daniel, and he's involved with you. You're not on your own. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, you're not in this world by yourself. God is involved. God is in control. I'm going to go through these kind of quickly. God is in control. Verses 37 and 38 say this, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom, listen, the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is only in charge because God sovereignly allows him to be in charge. God is in control. He sets up kings. He removes kings. He, he is sovereign over every detail and every aspect of the world in which you find yourself. 
That brings up an issue, though, doesn't it? For many of us, that could bring an issue. God's involved. God's in control. Why does it always feel like it? I'm sure at times it didn't for Daniel and his friends as they're, they're carried off, their cities wrecked, their temples ruined, they're, they're, they're drug a thousand miles from their homeland, they're put in this, this, this vicious kingdom. God's involved and God's in control, but it doesn't always feel like it. You know, why doesn't it feel like it? And there's so many answers to that from the Bible. There's a whole range of when you ask this question of like, okay, if God is good and God's in control, then why do bad things happen and why do tough stuff occur? What's going on? The Bible gives a ton of answers. It could be fatherly discipline. It could be that God's refining you. It could be that we're in sin and God is exposing the consequences of sin so that we might repent and turn back to him. It could be that, that we grow through trials like, like working out and exercising your muscles and the little micro tears, they build up to increase strength and endurance. It could be a ton of different things and we know that God doesn't waste any things, but let me invite you to something that can help with this, whether or not you know what God's doing behind the hard, weird, strange, difficult, distressing things that happen in this world, and it's this, trust. You don't need to know exactly what God is doing. Daniel did it. You don't need to know exactly when he's going to do it. Daniel did it. You don't need to know exactly how God is going to work things out for good. Daniel didn't. Now, we want to know. It's, it's okay to be curious. It's okay to want to know. But sometimes we get so derailed. God, what are you doing in this situation as opposed to maybe I could just trust God whatever he's doing in this situation, whether I know it or not. I've used this story uh, before. Um, John Cavanaugh, this well-known ethicist, was visiting Mother Teresa and when he went over to Calcutta, he was visiting and he's serving. And at some point, he gets a, a meeting with her, and, and she says, "You know, you know, thank you for coming." They're interacting, and then she says, um, "What would you like for me to pray for? I would like to pray for you. What do you want me to pray for?" And John Cavanaugh he says, "I would love that you would that, that you would give me that you would pray for clarity." Like I want to know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I want to know what the next. I want to know. And she uh, she goes, "I won't pray for that." <laughs> What? Yes. And then she goes on. She says, it's the last thing you're holding on to and you need to let go of. And then he responds. He says, but you seem to have so much clarity. And she goes, she just laughs. And she goes, I've never had clarity. What I've always had is trust. So what I will pray is that you trust God. Corey Ten Boom says it like this. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Daniel and his friends needed that message as they were carried off in exile. Maybe you do as you're, you're, you're looking at court cases and you're looking at policy decisions and, and, and you're looking at hiring practices and, and you're looking at your, the composition of your neighborhood and, and, and you're trying to think about what am I supposed to do with my kids and, and, and you're just trying to figure out like what is going on. Maybe instead of clarity, maybe God is inviting you to trust. I watched a documentary recently on running 100 miles. It was two guys that were both prepping and then running their first 100-mile race, like in one stretch, and it was really fascinating. And one of the things that I'm sure most of us would assume here is that running 100 miles at one time, it takes a lot of work, but there's something else that takes a ton of. It's this magical substance called body glide. Have you ever heard of body glide? So it looks, it basically comes in like what looks like a deodorant stick, but it's not deodorant. It basically lubes you up so you're kind of like a fish. Because when you're running 100 miles, there is a lot of friction. There is frictions in part of the human body you didn't even know the human body had. 
And that's an interesting illustration. All right. Um, your blisters get blisters, and chafing goes to a whole new level. And so throughout this, out their, their training, these, these two guys kept saying, you know, you got to use a lot, of, a lot of body glide. And they kept using this, this line, apply liberally and often. Um, the first sermon that I preached in this series, I read this longer quote from a guy named Pete Scazzaro. And over and over, he recited this mantra, God has a plan. God has a plan. Apply it liberally and often. Let me quote him. And we don't have a slide for this one. I inserted this kind of late. He says this, when you find yourself at the grave of a loved one that you'll never see again, you can trust this. God has a plan. When you're betrayed by someone you've served with, a friend, a coworker, and finding yourself in a deep hole, God has a plan. When you have challenges in your family and you're disappointed, God has a plan. You end up losing your job. God has a plan. The future seems dim. It would have to Daniel and his friends, for sure. But God has a plan. You find yourself in great suffering, exhaustion, and grief, and you're looking for God's hidden will. You're not sure where it is, but you can trust this. God has a plan. Our government is so divided and so split. It looks, evil as, it looks as if evil is expanding on both sides of the aisle, but God has a plan. It looks like everything pure and lovely and good is not enduring, but God has a plan. You have dreams that have been shattered, but God has a plan. The pure in heart are trampled. The proud are strutting the earth. But God has a plan. The future, God says, I've got it. And that's what this text is saying. God, by his kindness and his mercy and his generosity, what he did for Daniel and his friends as they sat in this, this kingdom that was not their own, he says, I have a plan. The future, I've got it. And that's what this dream is all pointing to. God is involved. God is in control. God has a plan. It is a really good plan. And what I want to do is use this text that we could zoom in on it. There's one last part of this dream, one of the details that we haven't talked about. We talked about this image, but there's another part of this dream, this, this stone that gets cut out and becomes a mountain. And one of the questions we need to ask, well, okay, the, this, this image, the, the, the head points to Nebuchadnezzar and these others point to, to kingdoms. What's the stone point to? Well, we can see this throughout the Bible, but the, the biblical answer is this, that it's Jesus. If we, I'll just put a couple of texts up on the screen. So Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and following. But he looked, or this is Jesus speaking, and he's, he's referencing a number of passages applying to himself. He says, he, says uh, he looks directly at them and says, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And see if you can hear the reference points back to Daniel here. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Or we can look at 1 Peter 2, 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We could go to so many other texts that point to Christ as this stone from Daniel 2, but I just suggest to you that it's Christ. One of the questions we might ask, though, is what is a mere stone in the face of this image that we're told is dazzling and frightening? What's strong enough to conquer with no rivals? What could possibly set everything right? One of the things that we see from a passage like this is God's plan includes this, a very unexpected kingdom. 
very unexpected. Begin, so, so if, if um, I would suggest to you that the statue kind of works through some of the kingdoms that came after Babylon, I'm not going to make a huge case for it, but it goes through the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and then it goes to the Roman Empire. At the height of Roman Empire, this is how God brought about his kingdom, with a baby. Born to a virgin, from an um, obscure, small, little town. In the time when the Roman Empire was at its fiercest and its strongest, God said, I'm going to subvert that kingdom through the coming of a baby. Born to unimpressive people. But what God began in that manger was, was the sowing of the seeds of the kingdom that would change the world. It was God in flesh come in the person and work of Christ who then, as you read through the stories of Christ, the gospel accounts of Christ, and, and he's casting out demons and he's calming the seas, he's exercising his sovereign power. He's befriending and healing and welcoming sinners. He's saying, this is how you can be made right with God. It's unexpected, though, because none of us, one of the things that actually is the most compelling things to me about the truth and validity of Christianity, none of us would invent this. None of us would say, oh, I know how we'll, we'll disarm all the powers and the principalities and all the fierce forces, a baby. And then that baby grows, and that baby goes to a cross. God's kingdom is an unexpected kingdom. The stone that, that came was nailed to a cross where Christ died on behalf of all those that would trust in him. And it's unexpected, but the Bible tells us that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he, he shamed the powers and principalities of darkness. He triumphed over them. I love the John Owen line. It says, when, when death stung Christ, it stung itself to death. It was so unexpected. And yet it subverted the kingdoms. The Roman Empire thought it had power over Christ, but all it was doing was displaying the power of Christ. And then he goes to a tomb. And he sits behind a stone. But then three days later, Jesus, he rises from the dead and the, the stone, it flips away and Christ is resurrected. No one would have predicted it. And yet God did it. I was running um, by uh, Bayview Cemetery a month ago maybe and I was just listening to some different songs and right as I got to Bayview Cemetery, there's a song that came on and it just said, oh death, where is your sting? And so I just ran into the, to the, to the cemetery, and I just ran around the cemetery. Oh, death, where is your sting? And then Christ descended. He goes up to the, after 40 years, he ascends to the right hand of the Father, where right now he is reigning and ruling, and you know what? Waiting to return. And what this text says is there's a stone, and one day it will become a mountain to fill the whole earth. What begins so small? Will become something so magnificent. I was in Seattle recently. I was up in a hotel room, and I was pretty high up. I was like on the 44th floor, which was just this incredible view, and I was, I was doing some, some morning prayer time and some, some Bible time, and as I'm sitting there, I'm looking out this window over the city, and I'm watching kind of the sun go up, and I, you know, I see all the lights and the cars, and then the it begins to lighten up, and I remember just getting overwhelmed with this thought of like, God, I know that your glory will cover the seas as the water covers the earth, but how? This city, how are they ever going to get to know you? And it wasn't just that it's hostile towards Christ. It, it is and, and can be, but it's just so indifferent towards him. 
They're building their empires and building their monuments. And where does Christ play in that? And, and I, I was reminded of this text, and I was reminded of something that Jesus said about how his kingdom would come. He's this reference. He says, it's like a little mustard seed. It's this tiny little seed that gets planted in the garden. And then it grows and it grows and it grows massive, so massive that the birds find refuge in its limbs. And then he goes on and he, and he uses the reference to leaven. Leaven often in the Bible is used negatively, but in this one spot, Christ uses it positively. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a little bit of leaven. A little bit of yeast. You know, all you made bread during COVID, right? So it's like you put the, the yeast in there, and it begins to work in the dough. And he says this little measure that goes in, pretty soon it, it infiltrates the entire lump. It leavens the whole thing. It's power to change everything. God's kingdom is an unexpected kingdom, and why that's helpful is if you don't know that, you're going to miss it. Right now, in billions, billions of unseen ways, the seeds of the kingdom are being sown. And the sovereign Lord is cultivating them. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Right now, God is doing things that you don't see through the way you sit by your kid's bed and pray with them as you tuck them in or you open up a store or you volunteer at Alderwood or you show up to, 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 to your public school job just to, to, to work faithfully and to represent Jesus Christ as you, you get to know your neighbor. You bring a casserole. Sometimes a casserole to your new neighbor is a seed of the kingdom that God uses to bring about salvation and forgiveness and mending. Right now, the sovereign Christ is nurturing and cultivating and growing, and one day they will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's guaranteed. That's what this text says. His kingdom is guaranteed. Don't despair the day of small things. It will give way to rejoicing beyond all measure. It's also a universal kingdom. I need to move faster. It's an unexpected kingdom. It comes in ways we don't predict or know but it's coming. It's also universal. That's what this text says. I'll do this quickly. That the Bible ends with this picture. Every tribe and every tongue around the throne of Christ worshiping. And not just a, a small smattering. It says a multitude of peoples from every tribe and every tongue. Oh, don't you long for the day when wars and divisions would cease? It's coming. The stone will become a mountain and will bring everyone with Every tribe, every tongue, all those that bow their knees to Christ will come. Love this too. It's not just an unexpected kingdom that becomes a universal kingdom. It's an unsmashable kingdom. Unsmashable. It shall never be destroyed. That's what verse 44, if you, if you look at verse 4, it says, and in those days the king, those, uh, those kings, the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 1920, uh, Lord Reed helped establish the BBC, the British Broadcasting Company. And from 1927 on, he served uh, as its first director general. And there's a story I came across I thought was so great. It was in the 60s, and um, secularism was sweeping through England, and this young producer, he stands up in this meeting, and he says that the BBC should stop its Christian programming. Up to that point, the BBC had regularly done programming around Christ. And so this, this young exec stands up and says, look, no, nobody cares. We should stop showing this stuff. 
And then he has this line, and he says this. He goes, the church, it's, it's, it's obsolete. Lord Reith, I guess he's 6'6". Six, six. He stands up, and he just, <laughs> I just wish I was there to see. He just says, young man, sit down. And then he says this. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. Alistair Begg where I read this story, and he goes on and says it this way. He says, and you know what? It will. It will stand when the BBC and CNN and Fox as well dwindle and die. The kingdom of God will stand when every organization and institution meets its end. It's the only kingdom that lasts. It's the only empire that will remain. That's what this text is saying. It's the only one. It's the only one that is unsmashable that will last forever. And part of the reason for that is it's, it's a divine kingdom. Who cut the stone out? It's by no human hand. This is God's kingdom. Now, this text is all about perspective. It helps us see what's happening behind what's happening and who's really in charge behind who seems to be in charge. And having this perspective, it, it changes a lot of things. Let me just give you two things uh, to maybe take away from this time that it can really help with. It helps with your priorities and your posture. Having this perspective will really help with your priorities and and your posture. Let me ask you a question. If only one kingdom will remain, how might that impact your priorities now? There's only one. Let me answer that a bit by um, finishing this quote from Alistair Begg. Um, And you know what? It will. It will stand when the BBC and CNN and Fox as well dwindle and die. The kingdom of God will stand when every every organization and institution meets its end. And then he applies this to, to you and what we're doing. Your church may seem small. As you drive to meet with the household of God on Sunday, you may pass hundreds of houses who inhabitants give not a thought to what you are doing except politely or not so politely to deride it. It may feel little, but the kingdom of God is unsmashable. And it has an embassy in your neighborhood that we call the local church. Don't be discouraged as you meet. Don't be distraught over dwindling numbers or more and more hostile media. Instead, commit to it. Serve your church family. Give yourself to it. Because when the Lord builds his church, either through number or maturity, through our labors, our gifts, and giving, we are being used to build the only kingdom that will last forever. There is nothing coming next. So give your best to this kingdom. It may feel small, but it's never in vain, for this kingdom is eternal, and it's God's. You ever think that that's what you're part of? Ian DeGreed in his commentary asks us questions, when do we need the truth of this text? And, you know, one of the obvious answers is, well, we need it when things are frightening and things are hard. But he goes on, and I think he gives an, an unexpected insight. He says, you know what we really need it is when things are really good. Because <laughs> this message, that, remember who the dream was given to? It was given originally to Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned over, at that time, the, the fiercest power that exists We need this thing when things go good. Uh, A text like this, one of the things it can do is it can recalibrate our priorities. 
It's an invitation to participate in the things that last. There's a story about John Wesley who was with a benefactor, and this benefactor was walking him through um, his, his estate, just acre after acre after acre, um, just lavish, lavish mansion, room after room after room after room. So he's walking him through, and at the end of walking Wesley through this, he says, so what do you think? And, and John Wesley says, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all this. This text isn't saying that other organizations and endeavors are pointless. It's just they're not permanent. It's not that they're pointless. They're just not permanent. And so uh, an encouragement as we think about our priorities and we think about how we steward our time is to connect what you're doing to the only kingdom that will last. If you're a coach, coach to the glory of Jesus. If you're a teacher, teach to the glory of Jesus. If you're a parent, Parent to the glory of Jesus. If you are a manager, manage the people that God has entrusted to your care like Jesus so they may one day maybe ask you, why do you do it like this? You can point to Jesus. If you make money, steward your money to the glory of Jesus. If God gave you a home, use it to the glory of Jesus. If he put you in a neighborhood, get to know your neighbors to the glory of Jesus. If your kids play sports, let them play sports to the glory of Jesus. If you go on vacations, uh, vacation to the glory of Jesus. All the, you know, you figure out how to do that. It's not saying the things that we're involved in aren't important, but, but, but where they find their significance is how they get tethered to Christ in this kingdom that's coming, which is the only one that will last. The right perspective, it nurtures right priorities. It also does this, so it nurtures the right posture. And what an opportunity this provides. Um, Chapman University, they recently uh, released its annual survey on American fear. Um, and given what happened in 2020 and 2021, um, global pandemic, you know, cities in flame across our nation, contentious presidential election, claims of election fraud, storming of the Capitol, government-enforced shutdowns, vaccine mandates, and more, um, we wouldn't be surprised to find out that their survey said American fear is on the rise. In short, people are more afraid than ever. But a text like this says this, you don't have to be. I love the way um, Thaddeus Williams brings this together. He says this, as faith in an all-powerful God wanes, fear of powerful men rises. We shouldn't be surprised that fear of corrupt leaders is rising at the same time secularism is. Listen to this line, though. Fear is not the logical, psychological outworking of robust theism. Fancy phrase saying God exists and God is in charge. This is an opportunity for believers in an anxious age. Christians can be redemptively countercultural by taking our cues less from social media algorithms that promote fear and more from the theology of the first century church. We can point anxious friends, family, and neighbors to the fear-dispelling God of the universe who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them and whose power dwarfs earth's most powerful empires, nations, and kings. Stand tall. Jesus is Lord. You need that, and our world needs to see that. We're the people that know the king of kings and the kingdom that's coming and the kingdom that's unsmashable. Why are we worried? What are we afraid of? What are we anxious about? Who wins the next election? 
King Jesus will reign supreme. It doesn't mean to not be involved. It doesn't mean to not be engaged. It doesn't mean to not pray. It doesn't mean to not lobby. It doesn't mean any of those things. But do you trust the king that's coming with a king that's unsmashable? People are more afraid than ever. But guess what? We don't have to be. We know who wins. I was in a pub. Sounds better than a bar. I was in a pub. I did change it like eight times. Tavern? Was there, it wasn't a brewery. Pub. Pub will work. All right. A true story. I was in a public house. Um, around the block from the key arena, waiting to see the songs play, and there was a bully. But my buddy's stronger than the bully. As cheesy as this is, do you know the one that's stronger than all the bullies? Not just the king, but the king of kings. Not just the Lord, but the Lord of lords. The great stone mountain that's unsmashable. That was crushed that you might be saved. Stand tall. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Help us to believe and help us in our unbelief that we might know the one that you have sent, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the cornerstone, the capstone, the rock on which we stand, Jesus. And in knowing him, we would come to know calm and courage and confidence in an anxious world for the good of our own souls. But we'd also come to know those things for a witness to a worried world. That they might see you and come to know you and the peace that comes from knowing you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.